So if you, if you do have your Bible, then please do turn to Micah 5 for us, and um, I'll give you just a few seconds to do that. So uh, obviously Saturday's a really big day, it's Christmas Day, but actually for us there's um, something that's coming up before that, which is Christmas Eve. And it's Christmas Eve that we celebrate 21 years of getting engaged. Hey. Yes, and I, and I, I mean, I, I, against all odds, I'm the man and I remembered it was 21 years. I did just check with Ali to make sure my facts were correct, but it is 21 years. And I look back on that and I think actually time has really shot by, you know, the, the novelty of waking up next to my best friend, Ali, should add, um, ha- hasn't, you know, hasn't sort of run its course with me yet. But also it feels like a whole lifetime ago. We've gone through so much together and so much has happened over those 21 years. And for Ali, bless her, 21 years feels a long time because she's been waiting 21 years for the good looks to emerge for the money to start accruing in our bank account, for the Jimmy Choo's and the Boffy Kitchen at home and the Suzuki Cappuccino in the garage. I, I don't understand that one. But she's still waiting, bless her, for all of these things. So 21 years and still, still waiting, still eagerly anticipating those things. And of course, Advent for us is all about anticipation. But Micah reminds us that a month of waiting for us, the season of Advent, is nothing compared to what those who've gone before us have experienced in their longing for God, in their longing of him turning up. So let's, you might have found it by now, let's look at Micah 5 briefly, verses 1 to the start of verse 5. It's 8th century BC and we're in Jerusalem. The political scene is really complex and it's ever-shifting. So to the north... Israel's capital, Samaria, has fallen to the Assyrians and Yahweh's people, God's people, are once again being sent out and deported into exile. Here in Judah, in the area in which uh, Jerusalem is situated, the king, Hezekiah, has failed in his attempt to lead a coalition against the Assyrians, but somehow he's managed to wangle it so that Jerusalem has gotten off relatively lightly. The rest of Judah has been overrun by Assyrian troops, but this city remains largely unscathed. Can't turn my pages, that's the benefit of an iPad, isn't it? But the fact Jerusalem has been saved from the worst of Assyrian occupation has actually blighted it with a different but equally, if not more significant, set of problems. So Yahweh's people have now become blindly confident in God's protection over them and their city. They saw Yahweh's guardianship over them as some sort of dutiful necessity from him, not uh, an exercise in his voluntary grace. The Lord had become to them a one-sidedly forgiving and benevolent deity, some sort of grandfather figure. And now no longer united in their suffering together, these people, God's people, start to become fragmented and you start to see the division of the haves and the the have-nots and religious leaders begin to become less just and more oppressive over those for whom they are stewards. They start to abuse their positions of power. Things are becoming really distorted. And then Micah turns up, commissioned by God himself, this humble man of the people. We know very little about him. But we do know he's a humble man of the people and he comes in and he proclaims a similar message to the prophet Amos, to the prophet Hosea and Hosea who've gone before him. First, he proclaims deep lament. Then, it's about looming punishment. And then thirdly, the hope of salvation. 
Now, in order to shatter the Israelites' false sense of security and to pierce their obstinate deafness, Micah had no choice but to wield a mighty blow. For Jacob's transgressions and Israel's sin, Micah announces, the unthinkable would happen. Jerusalem, up to that point, so protected, so precious, so unique, so safe, would be overthrown. In verse 1 we see, it says, Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. This is about calamity overcoming both the capital and the king. Hezekiah's reputation would go down the pan along with his realm, and being struck by a rod on the cheek by an enemy is a real uh, terrible sign of humiliation for a once powerful monarch. But then we get to verse 2 and onwards, where Micah now reveals much more of a glorious picture of what true royalty will look like. Jerusalem and her king may have been brought low, but out of the most unlikely and unimportant of places, God will restore and grant a new kind of greatness. This new ruler will be of kingly lineage, guaranteed to lead the nations under the authority and in the strength of the Lord himself. The one who emerges may only be a shepherd of the flock, but make no mistake, royal blood flows through his veins. See how amazing this is. Never once did Micah entertain the idea that Yahweh would get so fed up with his people that he'd, uh, he'd transfer his allegiance to Israel and he'd, he'd give his loyalty and his love to others, to other nations. He could do what he liked with them and yet, were the people of Israel to perish, the Lord would simply be without a representative among the nations. There would be no substitute, there would be no standing, no new mice recruited to defend this line of Judah. Yes, his people would suffer the consequences of their sin, but whatever they did, wherever they turned, however shriveled their memory, they would ever be God's people. So what happened? Well, the reality is that about 700 years has to pass before the true ruler of Israel would come out of Bethlehem. And that's a lot of waiting. Generations of Yahweh's people would have been born into this hope of salvation. They would have heard it through the the, the generations before them. It would be in the collective memory of them as a people. These words of Micah and the other prophets. And then they would reach their death mats, only to wonder why the promises of Yahweh still remained little more than the optimism of men. And of course the situation wasn't hugely different. By the time the curtain rises on a young Mary and her fiancé, Joseph, making their arduous way to Bethlehem. The Israelites remained scattered. The old school prophets had long gone, and an eerie silence now continued to encircle the people. Those living in and around Jerusalem were still occupied. They still found themselves in a land of the other, this time occupied by the Romans. The ruling elite were corrupting religion, playing politics, and keeping themselves anaesthetized from the pain of the masses. Advent reminds us of this fast waiting, this aching of God's people in the past, holding tight to the fading light, wondering if theirs would be the generation that at long last would be celebrating the triumphal entry of the long-awaited Messiah into the city, to the holy city, at last to overthrow their enemies once and for all. And Advent also prompts us to ponder the promise of Jesus' return in our own time and in our own day. If history tells us anything about the working of God, 
is not to mistake silence for inactivity. Along with those believers who have gone before us, we too can find ourselves waiting in an eerie silence. Now, of course, by his spirit, Jesus is with us in ways that the people of Micah's day would never even have imagined. They could never have imagined them. Yet we know there is more to come because the kingdom is still to come in all its fullness. And in Advent, we wait again for the shepherd, for the one who will never abandon his flock. In the apparent silence, we yearn for him to reign in all the fullness, in all the strength, and in all the majesty of the Lord our God. In the meantime, in the waiting, King Jesus, bring us peace in our patience. And help us not to forget in the darkness what you have promised in the light. Amen. Amen to that. I just want to take a couple of minutes to focus on joy. If I say to you rejoice right now, I don't know what your guttural reaction is. Because actually, normally at Christmas, you know, there's enough flashy lights and there's enough excitement and presents and all sorts of wonderful things to eat that we sometimes forget to actually rejoice and thank Jesus for being him and for coming. And I don't know about you, but this year, gosh, I didn't know we'd be here again in this very moment. I mean mentally and emotionally as Omicron now grows and you think, oh, it's hard not to just go, isn't it? I'm finding it hard. I asked a friend to pray for me this week. They said, would you pray for some joy for me? I just need that joy. But I want to just draw us to why the Apostle Paul, stuck in a dingy prison thinking he was going to die, said rejoice. And again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, brothers and sisters who know Jesus, who love Jesus, rejoice. And Ali's chosen this fab poem and I'm going to whiz through it quickly to give it some pace. But it uses the Latin word gaudete, We've all heard that steel ice fan, haven't we? Gaudete, Gaudete, it's that one. But it means, it's Latin, it means rejoice. And this poem captures some of the little things we rejoice at at Christmas. And then the staggeringly huge thing of Jesus is coming. Poem by Brad Reynolds goes like this. Because Christmas is almost here and because dancing fits so well with music, because inside baby clothes are miracles, Gaudete. Because some people love you, because of chocolate, because pain does not last forever, because Santa Claus is coming, Gaudete, because of laughter, because there really are angels, because your fingers fit your hands, because forgiveness is yours for the asking, because of children, because of parents, Gaudete, because the blind see and the lame walk, Gaudete. Because lepers are clean and the deaf hear. Gaudete. Because the dead will live again and there is good news for the poor. Gaudete. Because of Christmas. Because of Jesus. You rejoice. Isn't that wonderful? Even got Father Christmas in there. It's brilliant. But we heard from Neil about the hope of this shepherd coming. This one who he had to wait 700 years for. He has come, friends. And this is love that he came. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loves us and sent his son. And his son loves 
and watches and cares and protects and nurtures all of us. It's a love worth rejoicing in. So in a moment we're going to sing joy to the world, but before we're going to pray together. And to do this, can I just ask you to stand at home if you're able, do stand. And when I say rejoice, all I want you to say is a single word. I want you to say the word hallelujah. So rejoice. Let's do this. Keep that hallelujah up. This night is born Jesus. Son of the King of glory, this night is born to us the root of our joy. Rejoice! This night gleams sea and shore together. This night was born Christ, the King of greatness. Rejoice! Hallelujah! Though laid in a manger, he came from a throne. On earth, though a stranger in heaven, he was known. How lowly, how gracious his coming to earth. His love, my love kindles to joy in his birth. Rejoice! Hallelujah! Sweet Jesus, King of glory, now you sleep in a manger, in a stable poor and cold. But for us you are the highest king, making our hearts into your palace. All hail, let there be joy. Rejoice! Hallelujah. Hallelujah.